This is another iRaw podcast. There's this acceptance of this idea that we are animals and that we are a part of the rest of nature in an ontological sense, but not in an ethical and political sense. And that's why it has not been helpful. We're willing to acknowledge that we are animals as long as it comes to kind of saying, yeah, we're just animals and everything that we do is natural. That there shouldn't be any part of the planet that just sort of, you know, that excludes humans. But when it comes to ethical and political questions, we continue, our societies continue and our norms continue to see us as more than animals. Welcome back to the Animal Turn podcast. This is season six, episode eight. In this season, we're focusing on animals and politics. And in today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to Krithika Srinivasan. She is a return guest on the show, and we have a fantastic mind-bending conversation. Krithika Srinivasan is a senior lecturer in human geography at the University of Edinburgh. Her research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of political ecology, post-development politics, animal studies, and nature geographies. Her work draws on research in South Asia to rethink globally established concepts and practices about nature-society relations and reconfiguration approaches to multi-species justice. Krithika is the principal investigator of the project Remaking One Health Indies, which we discussed quite a bit in today's show. And she's also published widely in a variety of journals, including the Sociological Review, Geoforum, and Environment and Planning. In today's episode, we speak quite a bit about one of her papers, which is Reanimalizing Wellbeing, Multi-Species Justice After Development. Always have a good time talking to Krithika. She has a way of kind of really jumping deep into theoretically dense and difficult concepts. The last time she was on the show, we spoke about biopolitics, and today we're speaking about reanimalization, which in and of itself can be quite a political concept to discuss. But she raises some really interesting kind of thought experiments that I think are really worthwhile when thinking about this kind of relationship between animals and politics that we're exploring this season. So hope you enjoy. Hi, Krithika. Welcome back to the Animal Turn podcast. It's great to have you back on the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. I had a really nice time chatting with you a few years ago, and I'm both excited and nervous about being here again, like I was just telling you a while ago. (laughs) Nothing to be nervous about. Your last interview was amazing. So it's great to have you back on the show. Today, we're going to be talking about, I think, a really important concept. We're nearing the end of the season on animals and politics. And so far in the season, we've spoken about, I think, everything from, you know, violence to pretty high political theory to, you know, activism. But your concept today kind of brings us a little bit towards thinking about the future and how we can think about the future of politics. And that's reanimalization. And I can imagine on the face of it and myself included here, when you hear the concept reanimalization, a whole bunch of alarm bells can also start going off because in academia, animalization is a pretty thorny concept. But you use it in a really different way in your in your writing and your paper. So I'm excited to get into that. But before we do that, for folks who haven't listened to your previous interview, how did you get involved in, in animal studies? I suppose a series of accidents, the accident of birth. I was born into a family where my grandfather always had animals around, so growing up, there were animals of different kinds around around us, and we were also kind of taught to think about them in a particular way. And and then I I suppose when I was looking to 
do a PhD. I I I wasn't I didn't think of, think about like doing a PhD in animal studies. I was because it was not even a possibility. It was not even I didn't even know it was a field of scholarship because I I, I did most of my education in India. And I was sort of thinking more along the lines of environmental ethics and philosophy and policy, environmental policy. And I guess it was, you know, another set of accidents is that then I was just, you know, looking. I was I was basically reading around the field of political ecology and I was looking up the work of someone at King's. And I stumbled across another person there who had a couple of students who seemed to be doing interesting work. One is Franklin Ginn, who works on plants, and then Maria Escobar, who at that point was working on pigeons. And I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. So I wrote to their supervisor, who then ended up becoming my PhD supervisor. And David has nothing to do with, he doesn't work on animals himself. And I don't think he's taken on any animal students after me. So I think I have put him off for life. So, but <laughs> he he took me on and I ended up doing a PhD on street dogs and marine turtles. And yeah, and I, I think it was also timing because that was, a, that was the point when animal geographies was sort of building and gaining momentum as a momentum as a as a field of scholarship i mean obviously it, it has a long history with jody ml and jacqueline walsh's work and chris Milo's work but in terms of actually the kind of a field where where you know which is more widely recognized it was that time at that point so i guess it was all the timing and you know and a set of series of accidents in terms of being there at the right moment so yeah, you, you've done some really remarkable work. And I know the, the last time you were on the show, you had mentioned, you know, we, we were speaking about some of the differences, I think, in terms of cities. And we were speaking about Indian cities and British cities. And I remember you reflecting on when you were a student, having someone coming to your campus and saying, England has the best and most robust animal welfare laws in the world. And that, you know, striking you as being quite strange and remarkable because, you know, there seemed to almost be an absence of animals in British cities, whereas uh, in Indian cities, there were so many uh, animals and animal life. And I know that you're still working on dogs. So it's it's great to kind of see you started with dogs in your PhD and you're still working on and looking at street dogs now. And you've got this new project. It's been going now for, what, about a year and a half now, Ro Indies. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So again, this project is an accident and I must, it's, like, you know, I, I worked on dogs before and I didn't think I was going to go back to work on dogs again because I didn't want to be a dogs person. But then my who, the person who is now my history collaborator, Chris Pearson, he had actually, we bumped into each other at a workshop when I was a PhD student many years ago. And he has retained an interest in, in looking at dogs. And so he contacted me a few years ago, I think in 2019, saying, I'm thinking of, you know, developing a project on dogs. Would you like to work together? And I said, yes. And then, then that's that's how this <laughs> ended up doing dogs again. And th- so this though this time around, I'm approaching dogs from a slightly different perspective in some way, um, in a sense of so my previous work has been on how ideas of dog well-being have been, are, you know, are both constructed and also put into practice and how these norms kind of travel across different locations and what that, what are the material implications of our ideas of dog well-being on on the dogs themselves. So my previous work was focused on that. Whereas currently, it's it's it has a slightly different emphasis in that um, we'll, this project we're looking at the relationship between street dogs or free living dogs, which is my preferred term, and public health. But public health conceived of in a way that's much broader than it normally is. 
to public health, not just in terms of negative impacts on human health, but public health in the sense of looking at the multiple dimensions of health. So asking, could there be, sure, there are negative impacts like rabies or bites or, you know, nuisance, or perhaps there are positive impacts on human health. And then also adding on this dimension of multi-species health. So what might health from the point of view of the dogs themselves look like if we include, if we have this expanded understanding of the public as being multi-species or more than human, because the public doesn't have to be just the human. And this is something that has come from my previous work on this, where what we found, what we found was that like the people think of street dogs or free living dogs as the public, like in, in local languages, they talk about them as makkal. Makkal literally means people. And so, or rather the public. So people, not in the sense of like necessarily human, but like though it's usually used in the context of the human. So, so this, so it's, 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 it's almost like it's an understanding that comes from the ground up, though I also know that there is work that talks about this at a more conceptual level about the public as being multi-species or more than human. But for the, for our project, it is very much grounded in what we found in some of our, you know, previous research, which was done. And this is located in Indian cities again, right? Not just in Indian cities, but urban, rural and peri-urban locations in India. So multiple sites across India. I mean, we want to understand stuff as broadly as possible. And, you know, India is such a vast country. We cannot cover all areas, but we're trying to get a diversity of locations, whether it's geographically or politically or demographically. It's really fascinating work. And yeah, the, the idea, I think, you know, you started this project speaking about One Health at a really important and critical moment. I think when the whole world started to be like, what is One Health? And One Health has come up several times in, in the show, including in the, the previous season that looked at biosecurity. And I've raised several concerns around, I mean, I think it's really good in some, in, in many ways that humans are kind of being a bit decentered, other beings and, and environments are being you know, brought more into the frame when it comes to thinking about uh, health and environmental justice, that's important and that's needed. But several times I've kind of expressed a concern that I, I worry that One Health is going to end up becoming the new stand-in for sustainable development, where people say, you know, we care about environment, economics, social justice, but in fact, economics is still always a put, you know, above everything else. The justice of environments or of animals is maybe not taken as seriously. So it's kind of like a discursive game a little bit where, where you say that you care for other animals, but are you actually implementing policies and practices that, that take seriously their health and, and their concerns? And this, this takes us, I think, nicely to the, the concept and focus today, which is reanimalization. And the reason I think so is because I think part of the slippage with both sustainable development and with One Health is that there's this underlying thought that actually human health and human well-being remains the most important. And this is kind of central to your idea of reanimalization. So why don't I let you maybe just give us a, an opening kind of gambit of what, what it means. What, what does it mean when you say, you know, reanimalization? So in terms of context to this paper, it's perhaps my first attempt at doing something that is constructive as opposed to deconstructive. So all my work till now has been about like trying to figure out what's wrong with the world. I've never really gone down the road of trying to rethink what how things should be done differently because that's far more difficult. So that's one thing to bear in mind. So the the second thing to bear in mind is that this paper has actually come out of my out of my teaching a course on political ecology over several years. 
And it's 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 sort of through the kind of both the materials that I've taught, the discussions that I've had with my students in class, the questions they have raised that have kind of culminated in this paper. So I would I would very much I don't know why I didn't put it in the acknowledgments section of that paper, but it's very much a product of of that course in the sense of like it, that teaching that course forced me to kind of you know think about certain things because of the questions that were being raised in class. So I think it's important to so I, I so I was trying to do two things. One is okay, I you know I've been talking about and as have lots of other people about like all the things that are wrong with the world and all the things that are wrong with how we relate to the rest of nature. Then how do we do it better? And lots of people have been writing about that as well and thinking about it and doing practice on it, but somehow nothing seems to have had much impact. And that's one of the things that the first half of the paper basically makes an argument that, that, you know, there's, we all know that there are, you know, that the way in which we relate to the rest of nature is really problematic and people have been trying to work on it for a very long time in different ways, but nothing has really happened. So then how do we, then you know, so what is really kind of going wrong? So that is the sort of like question that this paper, that this paper kind of tries to grapple with. And so I think what I try and say in that paper is that all the things that have gone wrong till now because of this vision of human well-being that we have, which rests on this idea that we somehow ought to be more than animal. So more than animal in two ways, more than animal in how we insulate ourselves from the risks and vulnerabilities that are inherent to being a part of life on earth, right? And then more than animal in terms of us engaging in things or having capacities that somehow distinguish us from all other animals, like going on holiday, for example, right? So I then, you know, and, and so a lot of the discussion is about how it is it is this vision of human well-being and the way it is pursued at societal scales through this thing that we know as development that has led to a lot of these social justice and ecological justice and animal justice problems that we've been grappling with for a very long time. So so then for me, then the task became to think about, how, you know, if, if it's it's this vision of human well-being as something that involves becoming more than animal that is at the root of all of these troubles, then how do we rethink this? So then it, it became this question of reversing it. So if it's trying to become more than animal that causes all these problems, then perhaps what we need to do is to reanimalize, right? So that is the sort of background to thinking about reanimalization. And so what then does it mean to reanimalize human well-being? And and so so literally it's a question of like asking ourselves, how do other animals, because human beings are also animals, how do they inhabit this world? How do what are their kind of like how do we learn from them on how to have a good life and how to inhabit this world in way in ways that are not destructive? And that's that's at the root of this idea of reanimalization. So it's a positive understanding of what it means to be animal, even though, as you've pointed out earlier, the idea of animalization is coded quite negatively in both public discourse and in scholarship because it's often used to marginalize and disempower and oppress vulnerable communities. But that in itself, that the use of the word animalization in such in such problematic ways is possible because we have this understanding of the human and of human well-being as being more than animal, right? So how do we move away from that and ask ourselves, what does it mean to, in Val Plumwood's words, 
resituate ourselves or humankind ecologically. I don't remember her exact words, but something to that effect, right? Like, what does it mean to live as one among other animals, as as one among other one among the rest of nature? So that is what is at the heart of this concept. So. One, I really, really like the idea that you're saying more than animal. You know, so often I think in the the writing of animal studies, we talk about more than human. You know, we'll speak about more than human. And yeah, I find that I just tend to go to the default of speaking about animals and humans and, and acknowledging that this, you know, I think that those concepts remain useful because that's the way in which we navigate the world. That's the way in which a lot of people come to understand the world. So to not kind of, I think, take everything out of the concepts, but I've not really come across people using more than animal. I've heard a lot of people talking about more than human. And I think that that's quite an interesting, your whole paper is doing a whole bunch of like flips and inversions that are quite fascinating. And if I understand you correctly now with regards to reanimalization, it's not, you know, it's, it's a matter of saying development is this big behemoth thing that we just unquestionably say is a good thing. We need to develop, develop, progress, progress. And as long as we're developing and progressing, we're doing well. There might be some casualties. There might be some things on the side that go wrong. But as long as we're developing, then things are going well. But it seems that in your paper, you're challenging this idea of development as being inherently good. Is that correct? So I see development as a mechanism through which we are pursuing a particular vision of human well-being. So it comes after the vision. Perhaps it'll be called something else 50 years later. I would say that colonialism was another mechanism that was, again, used to pursue a similar vision of human well-being. So colonialism has become development, and I don't know what we'll have 100 years down the line. But what is common to these two pursuits, these two mechanisms, is that vision of human well-being as more than animal. Interesting. Okay, so because, yeah, another thing you kind of do is you say, well, myself included, I'm like, we've got to decenter the human. We've got to stop focusing on the human. But what you're doing here is in this paper, you're recentering the human and you're saying, well, what does it mean to be a good human? And I remember in the previous interview, you said, like, we spoke a lot about the good life and the good life for a dog. So what is this imagination or this idea of the good life for a human? And, you know, do you have any concerns, though, that the idea of what a good life is or human well-being is is variable? Or do you think that there is a kind of universal-ish understanding of human well-being that, that we're all in pursuit of? Quite regardless of whether, you know, I don't know I, where the actual truth lies, like in terms of your question, is there, is there are multiple versions of human well-being or is there a universal human understanding of human well-being? We live in times where there is a universal understanding of human well-being that underpins societal norms almost across the world. So regardless of what we believe, that is all what we are, that's the system under which we're operating, right? So could you could you help like unpack that a little bit for me? So what is it, what is it when we're thinking about human well-being? What 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 are these kind of societal structures and things that are where we're gearing towards that our societies seem to be setting us up for for being well as humans? Of this thing of being more than animal. So pretty much all mainstream societies other than the ones that are still kind of isolated and that are, you know, indigenous communities that have no contact with the rest of the world. Pretty much all mainstream societies do have these norms about how a good human life is predicated on insulation and predicated on being able to do these things that are somehow more than animal. There may be variations in that, like, you know, there might be variations in terms of 
what kind of food gives me makes me have a good life but the idea that i should have you know three meals a day and i should be assured of a steady supply of food not just for me and my family but for the at the nation state level of the nation state or you know of societies across the world endlessly into the future is something that is there across all mainstream society so that way whether we we actually believe that there there are universal ideas or not our societies are structured and towards pursuing some universal norms and the fun, most fundamental norm being of being that of the kind of this more than animal vision to, to to ground a little bit, I think you gave two, I think, pretty good examples. So I, I know you spoke about the Human Development Index, right? And again, now you, you say that development is kind of a mechanism to achieving this goal and this 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 ideal of human well-being. But two kind of things, I don't know what words to use or whether it's characteristics or mechanisms or whatever of this seems to be longevity, you mentioned, and also killability, this idea that human well-being involves living a long life and human well-being involves not being killable the sanctity of human life these are these are i guess two of the characteristics of human well-being or yeah i don't list them as such but yeah you're right are there are there others like because because I, I really found what did you say with regards to to livability i mean longevity i found that really quite fascinating this kind of idea and you see it manifesting in so many different ways, this idea that you can live a long life and living a long life needs to always be put above all else. And I think this manifests even just in human to human cases, you know, when people want something like assisted suicide, the fact that this is viewed as a massively controversial topic, even though you, you, you want to end your life for whatever reason, the fact that this has become a massive debate where you have no agency actually over when your life could end or begin that the, yeah, it is. It is this kind of san, san, sanctimonious. Sanctimonious isn't the same thing, is it? No, <laughs> there's a sanctity to to living a long life, right? Yeah, and I use the example there to kind of show how our, our vision of human well being is predicated on being more than animal, right? Because death is an integral part to life on Earth. Every organism that is born as, as that is there as life on on Earth dies. I don't know about viruses. I don't know what happens to them. My biology is not good enough, but all of the organisms die. And that is, but, but, but central to this idea of what human well-being is, is what you find is that at least again in mainstream societies and, you know, and in a way that is sort of, it's, it's an accumulative vision. So what would, was considered a long life 50 years ago is much shorter than what is considered a long life now. So we want to be more and more, more than animal. And so I was using life expectancy, which is considered to be one of the most basic indicators of human well-being and development, how that in itself, at the most basic level, we're not talking about computers, we're not talking about luxury goods, we're not talking about the kinds of things that are often criticized when one wants to criticize development, but I'm just talking about the most basic thing which most people take for granted. Why is this more than animal, though? Wouldn't we want long lives for other animals? Like, why, why is this seen as being separate to or different to you know why is it more than more than animal what makes this distinctive so if you look at life expectancy it's something and that's also another point that i make in this paper is that these what we often do when it comes to certain other animals and certain other organisms that we value whether they be pets or farmed animals or gardens we impose similar visions onto them so we want our pets to have a long life 
if you look at, you know, many of them have have increasing lifespans, you know, in comparison to how they might be if they were free living or in the wild. But by contrast, our understanding of what, say, an animal that is not domesticated, by and again, by not domesticated, I mean, here I'm not talking about farmed animals who have where our understandings of what a good life is there is very different. But comparing a pet to a free living animal, we wouldn't expect a crow to have an ever increasing lifespan or life expectancy, but we would for ourselves and for our pets. So it's not something that we expect other all other organisms on the planet to have. So therefore, it's more than animal. And what we're doing with our pets is to rem- is removing them from the realm of the animal and bringing them slightly more to the realm of the human, which is typically how a lot of environmental and animal welfare or animal rights thinking and practice has has evolved, that it's about shoring up the disempowered, the disprivileged, the vulnerable, whether they be human others or non-human others, and making them more like the more privileged. So are you suggesting here then in reanimalization, if one of the things, would reanimalization then be suggesting that we shouldn't be pursuing longer lives for humans? Or longer lives for anyone? Yeah, yes. Short answer, yes. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a long life, but I don't know if it's something we ought to pursue the way we're pursuing. What do you What do you mean by that? If you look at like pretty much everything that we do, it is to stop parcels from dying, right? And we do it at the level of not just individuals, not at the level of families or communities, but at the societal scale. Our buildings are agricultural systems, our medical systems, our engineering systems are all about expanding of increasing life expectancy. And I guess that that not only the the increase in our own lives also results in, and, and our, in, in inverted commas, also results in the kind of, I guess, diminishing returns for other lives, right? So in order to have longer lives, we rely more and more on specific types of medicines. And this relies more and more on, you know, lab experiments being done on specific types of animals or going into more habitats, creating different types of habitat destruction. So the kind of elongation of our lives is also predicated on on cutting short the lives of others. So, and that's the other point that I make in the paper, that the way we pursued our well-being and the well-being of our kind of certain cherished others is through the logics of protection sacrifice. So we seek to shore up or to protect, but then there is always a sacrifice entailed in that. And this is not just humans versus other animals, but it could also be some animals versus other animals. So you vaccinate your pet dog, there are dogs in the lab that sacrifice their lives and their well-being for that. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, um, I spoke to Saskia Stuckey in, in season one, and she had that concept of animal warfare law. And in effect, she was kind of saying, you know, the, the whole, and Dinesh Wadiwal also speaks about like the war against animals, but it sounds to me like there's always this this casualty factor built into it. There's always a, a, a casualty that comes from whatever benefit we perceive for our societies having. And I guess some might hear that, well, you, how do you how do you avoid conflicts? How do you avoid casualties? Maybe having casualties and conflicts are just part of the part of what it means to live. Yeah, it does mean it is about how what it means to live. But do we need to I guess what I'm saying here is that do we need to have a system where which is built on that as opposed to casualties happening because we're going about our lives? 
there is an entire system, the entire way in which we pursue human well-being is right from the get-go predicated on sacrifice. Um, so I'm just going to say, bringing this to to politics then, because we've been speaking, I, th- I think, at quite a, I mean, it is a, a, you, it is a bit of a thought experiment. Like, what would it mean to be, and it's it's interesting because I think that the question in some way, like, what does it mean to be more animal? But we are animals and the ways in which we are in the world is animal to, to, to if, if we are animals, then this is a way of being animal, but maybe there's a better way to be animal by by looking at how other animals do they think well that was a that was a twisted that was a twisted sentence just you you listening to you say that makes me think that so what really i'm saying in this paper is that instead of trying to be more than animal we need to be more animal we need to remove the then yeah maybe because in in an interesting way saying more than animal yeah yeah more animal i think we need but then it's still always pre- it, I don't know how to sidestep this. I think it's a language issue because even the question kind of still puts us as a part and separate from animals, right? So it's this idea, it's this idea that somehow we're artificial, we're artificial animals, but we are, I guess, in a really meta way, the way in which we are in the world is a manifestation of animality because we are animals. But that's not very helpful in terms of in terms of addressing some of the big concerns and the big problems that we've caused on the planet. And it is, it has not been because, I, I don't know if we discussed this in the previous podcast that I did with you, is that there's this acceptance of this idea that we are animals and that we are a part of the rest of nature in an ontological sense, but not in an ethical and political sense. And that's why it has not been helpful. We're willing to acknowledge that we are animals as long as it comes to kind of saying, yeah, we're just animals and everything that we do is natural that there shouldn't be any part of the planet that just sort of, you know, that excludes humans. But when it comes to ethical and political questions, we continue, our societies continue and our norms continue to see us as more than animal. And it is that part that I'm, suppose, I suppose I'm trying to tackle in that people. And how would you imagine reanimalization, I guess, manifesting? And I mean, if you, if you could... If you could put this into policies and laws and make this an actual like political, if you could make it manifest, what do you think it would result in? Like, how, how would you see the world changing? What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. I don't know. And I, this is not that paper wasn't written as a as a kind of like a practical manifesto type of paper, but it's more of a set of thought experiments. And and there I've, I've so a, a while after I wrote that paper, I I I've stumbled upon upon some literature on which goes under the kind of the broad, broad rubric of utopianism and imaginaries and and how utopian thinking is about trying to stretch the boundaries of the possible or the limits of the possible. It's to make the unthinkable thinkable, and then, like Escobar puts it, make so then you 
move it from thinkable to the credible, and then from the credible, it goes to the practical, right? So there are multiple steps. But if, if you, as long as you leave this in the realm of the unthinkable, you're not ever going to get anywhere. And at this point, like you pointed out at the beginning of this of this conversation, that even saying animalization or reanimalization is still quite unthinkable, right? So, so I don't know if you're yet there at the level of, you know, at kind of the place where we can think about policies and what our societies might actually look like. But I think we are there at a point where we can actually allow our, our, ourselves to think and, you know, imagine differently. And I have some examples in that paper, you know. Could you could you give us one of those examples? Yeah, I kind of build on Val Plumwood's writing on, you know, her encounter with a crocodile. Points out that, like, we are just not, the idea that we can be food for other animals is just, again, it's in the realm of the unthinkable. Now, interestingly, Val Plumwood's work and that particular piece of work has been used quite widely to argue against veganism or vegetarianism, to saying that it's quite natural to eat other animals. But actually, the point that she's making is quite different. You know, she's saying that that we can also be eaten, which that and that part of her work has just kind of remained completely unseen or you know un, un, undiscussed. I, I you know, I, I guess the reasons why is also to do with politics, since the subject matter of this season is politics. So anyway, so on this paper, I try and do that. So, you know, so what 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 happens if you think of ourselves as food? And when I kind of bring this up in class or in seminars, people always think, ah, oh, they think about permaculture. They think about like giving your body to the earth and being buried in a cardboard coffin after you die or about using your waste for compost. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. It's about being killable as food for other animals. And whether they be big animals, charismatic animals like wolves and tigers, but or smaller ones like, you know, bed bugs and mosquitoes. Can we learn to live? If we, are, if we want to use other animals and other organisms as food, then surely, just like, you know, all animals... So what you said earlier about casualty is built is is a is a way of that's it's it's unavoidable it's inevitable is what you said earlier right and and which is and it's in a way that you find that sentiment being echoed in in dominant narratives about how humans are also other animals saying that we're also other animals so it makes sense for us to eat other animals it makes sense for us to build buildings because or dams because beavers build dams right. But then what that overlooks is that it's the other way, it's the other, the other side of it, right? Which is that beavers may build dams, but then they, they get eaten up by, I don't know what eats beavers, but they subject themselves to, you know, they're subject to other things. Uh, uh, okay, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being very good with, with, with examples here, but that while animals may eat other animals, they're also eaten by other animals. Yeah. And sometimes they even eat their own young. And I, I think you're, you're talking here to kind of the double standards that we often have. So, so we'll say, oh, but we're, we're doing this because animals do that, so we're animal. But then we kind of pull into focus these exclusions with some things that we find objectionable, right? Like other animals eating their own young or eating each other or, you know, incest. There's a whole bunch of kind of things that other animals do that we that we would consider in some of our societies to be objectionable, right? To say, oh, no, we shouldn't do that. But we kind of pull on specific threads when we want to make an argument for using animals and we pull on other threads for when we want to say that we're better than animals and we, we shouldn't be 
comparing ourselves. So it's 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 an interesting kind of play. But the idea of killability, I think, is fascinating because I think many humans are food for animals. It depends on what scale you're kind of talking about. I think other animals are eating on us all the time. But whether we're killed by other animals is a different kind of question. And and I think we are. I think the 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 and I think this also raises a, a question about who, who in terms of humans are considered to be killable and not, right? The the fact that malaria is running rampant across the African continent and remains one of the biggest killers on the African continent, and this is just kind of accepted. You know, of course, a lot of people are fighting against it, but in general, the, the death rate of malaria is massive, and this is caused by, by mosquitoes. So some lives, human lives, are considered more killable than other human lives. But then the idea that humans can be or should be killed by other animals is like yeah it is it seems completely out of question even if a bear in a zoo who's been kept captive for i don't know how many years 10 years kills their zookeeper then they are put down for for hurting their captor so it seems to be the like final frontier kind of yeah, and to go back to your example of malaria, I wouldn't say it's accepted. Just because lots of people in some parts of the world die of malaria doesn't mean it's considered acceptable. And I wouldn't necessarily say that. I wouldn't agree that some people are seen, or at least they nobody would like, you know, would at least in 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 public would say that it's okay for some people to die of malaria and not others. So that kind of norm at this point in time doesn't exist, right? So. And when we have such situ- such situations or phenomena where there's a lot of inequity, inequity between different human groups, the way we approach this is, again, by trying to shore up. So all the efforts would be focused on reducing death due to malaria in those parts of the world where malaria mortalities are high. That's where the focus is, right? It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, so the way our approach to justice is focused on shoring up. I mean, the UK now has a leveling up minister. So, so, and that is, that's not just the conservatives, but in general, in politics, in philosophy, in the critical social sciences and humanities, when we think about questions of justice, whether it's justice between human communities or justice between human and the rest of nature, it's about bringing to the more vulnerable other the benefits that more privileged communities, whether they're human or non-human, currently enjoy. And so I think what an important part of the sort of arguments I'm making about reanimalization is that along with this thing of becoming more than animal, we also need a different approach to how we pursue justice. So instead of thinking of shoring up, what we need to think about is the redistribution of risk. So instead of focusing on, I don't know, preventing malaria deaths in a different part of the world, perhaps think about what it might mean to reforest, not reforest, to make those those spaces which are occupied by privileged human groups more vulnerable in terms of how they share space. No, let me rephrase that. So I'm, I'm, I, I guess what I'm saying is that instead of focusing on developing the poor or reducing malaria in parts of the world where there is high death rate due to malaria, can we think about how more privileged people, people who are not dying of malaria, can live more like more as part of nature? So can we shift? Can there be a shift in that kind of focus? So the focus is not just from nature back to the human, but also from the disempowered other to the privileged self. I can definitely see 
I mean, this gets really, really tricky, really, really quickly, because I can see why, you know, you said speaking about the unthinkable. I mean, I wasn't meaning to suggest earlier that people in Africa should be dying of malaria or that it's not an issue that's taken seriously, only that I think if you saw that scale of death, let's say, happening on the European continent, you would have a very different kind of scale of response to what's happening. And I think this speaks to those inequities. But then I can't help that in hearing you kind of speak about this, that it could sound like you're saying, well, you know, people are dying in Africa of malaria, so that's just natural. So we need to just let, and I know that this isn't what you're trying to say, but I could see how this argument could lead to to saying that, well, people who are being killed by leopards in urban cities in in India, which now have some of the highest rates of, of leopard populations in the world, well, this is just part of being part of nature. So there is no, there's no need to protect there. And this comes back to your kind of dualism of protection and sacrifice. Yeah, and it just it, maybe this is my kind of challenge with thinking through this. Like, how do we not intervene when you've got massive numbers of people dying from malaria or people being kind of killed by by leopards? Uh, is it a matter of not intervening or just embracing the fact that other animals will kill us? I'm saying that we need. It's not easy because that's again what we've been socialized into thinking as a way of addressing inequities or, or injustices. Inequities, I would say, because I don't know to what extent. I mean, there wouldn't be as much emphasis on reducing the number of fatalities due to road accidents in Africa as there is on reducing fatalities due to malaria, right? Or even here. So there is. So we're, we're worried about inequities. We're worried about some kinds of inequities. And I'm saying instead of asking ourselves this question, should we stop intervening about in malaria in Africa? The question should be, again, directed back at us. How can we make our lives more like? animals, not the lives of others, should we let people in Africa live as part of nature? That is not the question. It's very difficult because that's that's not that's not how we've been socialized into thinking. We're always focused on the other. Whether the other as something that that needs to be improved or whether the other is something that needs to be sacrificed and exploited or helped. What what scale are you talking at here? Like are, are you thinking because because I can see I kind of had a little bit of a click there when you were saying like this idea of, you know, kind of commenting on how others are living and what they are doing actually should be focusing kind of a bit on your own house. Like how, how are you in your own world being more animal? How are you in your own world embracing your own ecologies and accepting? You don't even have to embrace. It doesn't have to be a romantic thing. It's just an acceptance of the fact of this is the environment you live in. And these are some of the, the vulnerabilities that come with that environment. But what kind of what kind of scale are you talking about here? Is it about me, Claudia, looking at the, the the city I'm in and and just acknowledging the fact that this is an ecology and being okay with some of the kind of disturbances or challenges that come with that? Or is it about scaling up and saying at you know at the urban level or at my municipal level? Is it about calling calling for policies and stuff there that are more accepting of in my locality? The, the different animals that are here, the different animal and human animal and animal and animal relationships that are here? So before I answer the question, I want to just use, and this is something that comes up in my class as well, what I said about like turning the gaze back onto the self. So just in sustainability discourse and development discourse, you I, you have this like idea of sustainable livelihoods and there are lots of like programs and policies that are focused on sustainable livelihoods. And you will find that all sustain, sustainable livelihoods programs are directed at 
poor farmers in the global south, to give you an example. But whose livelihoods are those that actually need to be more sustainable? I would argue the sustainable livelihoods program should be focused on bankers in London or perhaps even academics in Scotland, as opposed to a farmer in Africa or in South Asia. This is a great example. I, I think it comes up all the time when talking about like population sizes as well. People are like, oh, population. It's not about how many people there are. It's about how people are living. And when you think about the resource dependencies of folks living in New York City versus populations across you know, sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, you're talking about very different kinds of resource use and ways of living. So you're, you're exactly where, where the gaze is, is important. Yeah. And so, so while this paper talks about change, you know, shifting the gaze from the non-human to the human, you can do the same in, in many respects. So again, the gaze away from the marginalized other to the privileged self you know, the distant other to the proximate, you know, moving away from improving and showing up to thinking about redistributing risk. And, you know, so, so that's that's part of it. So in terms of what scale should we do this, you know, why does it have to be any one particular scale? And like I said, this is a, it's it's about stretching the, the limits of imagination. And so you could, you could do that at multiple scales. It could be at the scale of your everyday life. So when I was, I, I still spent a good part of my time in India. And when I was there for a few months earlier this year, I suddenly found my kitchen counter. I've always had ants come and go from my, from my kitchen counter. And I've always dealt with them by placing a little sugar in one corner and which has worked for a long time because they'd go feed on the sugar and then leave the rest of the food alone. But on this instance, it didn't work. It just attracted more ants. And the flat that I live in when I'm in India is quite old and dilapidated and the kitchen counter has lots of cracks and whatnot. And soon there was this like huge nest of ants under my kitchen counter. Like when I say huge nest, it's like, yeah. And it was also raining a bit. So every now and then you'd like see these swarms of ants all over moving from one place to the other, carrying their eggs, carrying the queens. It was I'm like, what have I done? This is really my... Uh, and it was a, it was, this is really a question of like, you know, how do I try and practice what I preach? I struggled. I, I did use things like neem oil and, you know, painting like, you know, boundaries around the opening to the nest and just leaving them, making a little like ladder for them to climb up through the window and escape. And then you really did try. <laughs> that. So I did, it's not that I didn't do anything, but I didn't want to go. You know, like I'm just going to spray them with something or pour water down the nest and kill them all. I didn't do that. I'm sure lots of them died because I would see bodies in the in the neem oil trail that I did. But then eventually what happened was that they left. It took a while. It took, I think, a month or more, but they left. I don't know where they went. So, you know, that's at the kind of really small scale. There's some really interesting work that I, I read a while ago by someone called Heather Lynch on bed bugs in Glasgow and how communities there, because and bed bugs have a lot of like, so it's not just the fact that they're like annoying, but there's also a lot of stigma attached to bed bugs, having bed bugs. So bed bugs actually don't, I think from what I understand, they don't cause material harm to people, but there's a lot of stigma associated with them because they're typically found in low-income neighborhoods and that makes people really fear them. 
Well, I have I have slept on a bed that had bed bugs while backpacking, and I can say that they are not comfortable to be around. They are not my favorite. They are not my favorite being in the world. I will say this from firsthand experience. No, so that that paper, I, I agree. I'm I'm paranoid, and I have all of these rules about like in my home, no bag should ever be on any furniture. And then you know, as soon as anyone I come from a, a trip or anyone comes, everything must be unpacked immediately, and the bags cleaned and put away so that there's no. <laughs> and which most most people think that I'm, you know a bit OCD about this, but it's like, I don't want that situation where I'm having to uh, deal with this. You see, I think though that it's okay to kind of also have these boundaries with other animals too. But I think what you were saying there with the ants is it's about not immediately picking up a can of doom and, and killing them, that there is there is room for more negotiation. And actually like the extent, the ease with which they are considered killable is, I think, one of the things that you're challenging. Because if we look at ourselves, that kind of ease of killability is it's just not on the table. No, no, that's not what I'm doing here. And that's what other scholarship does is to ask, should they be so killable? No, in this instance, I was asking myself, can I make myself less not killable? Well, killable isn't, you know, but am I saying, can I be okay with living with the with the difficulties posed by having a colony of ants on my kitchen counter. So not about, it wasn't about killing them or not killing them. It was about the extent to which you can be made vulnerable by the presence of others. Yeah, and it was, it was, it was very hard. They were that to red ants and they bite and it hurts when they bite you. Ooh, red ants. Yep. All right. Well, this has been really, really interesting. I mean, it's a it's a really dense, difficult concept. As you say, it's 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 challenging from a variety of different angles, but it's also really hard to grasp that the 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 I think you it's a fascinating paper and I really enjoyed this paper and I enjoyed how you kind of challenged notions of development and how you challenged the idea of what human well-being is and what the pursuit of human well-being imp, like implies. But the, the implications of this are, I think, they can be really far-reaching and probably in a good way because we do need to really readjust and think about how the world is currently structured. But, yeah, it's a good imagination kind of tool for thinking about how can we be different. Do you ever have concerns, last question before we go to your quotes, do you ever have concerns that this might be leading to, you know, like a more ecocentric kind of realm where we we lose sight of the individual completely where the individual is not really significant or important it's just a matter of kind of maintaining ecologies and saying well this ecology you're vulnerable and and that you just have to accept that why would that have to necessarily be only at the level of the collective you can also think about the in fact my i would imagine that i'm always focused on the individual much more than the ecological i'm just saying that at the level of the individuals and obviously development is something that is done at the societal scale but then the the end goal of development is human well-being and that is operationalized at the individual level right so it's still focused on the individual and and i would so i don't understand necessarily why when we're thinking about making people less killable for instance or humankind less killable it would necessarily have to be at the just conceived of ecologically it's still at the level of the individual right whether it's operationalized at the level of the individual. So I'm, yeah, I'm not sure why you... I guess that my, my concern comes in is, I guess, sometimes when you speak to, 
you know, like if you have a, let's say, a conservationist point of view or lens, you might be thinking about, you know, the, the sustaining of a species or the sustaining of a particular kind of group. And and sometimes I think when, yeah, I don't know, when we're speaking about kind of like human well-being and keeping, keeping, I, I don't know, I don't know, it just seemed to me like there might be a bit of a, a tension here where individuals get lost in in this idea of disrupting and making humans more killable, but maybe I've just gone off the rails a little bit there. No, no, I, I think I understand where you're coming from. And that would, I think that would happen if there was this vision of what a collective society ought to be like. And that's not what, so, and that's what happens in conservation is that, that they have this vision of a collective that needs to be protected or preserved and therefore individuals are sacrificed. But that is not what I'm trying to argue for in this paper. It's about, you can still think about the individual, right? But then, in fact, I would say it's an argument against the collective pursuit of human well-being. And if, because what do animals do? If you're thinking about how animals pursue their well-being, because it's not that they don't, they do it at a very different scale. They do it at the scale of the individual. They do it at the scale of perhaps their families or sometimes their communities, but definitely not at the level of the species or at the level of entire regions. Whereas human well-being, when it's pursued at the level of societies or of humankind as a whole, that's when you have all these problematic implications. Fascinating. Okay, well, time is marching on. Uh, do you have a do you have a quote ready for us? Kind of do, and this is from a part of the paper. So, and it, I, so I guess it just tries to summarize what I'm trying to do with this concept and the kind of shift in approach that I've been trying to argue for, which is that, so from a vision of a good human life premised upon insulation from the vulnerabilities inherent in living on this planet, we need to examine what it means to live as part of nature as one among other animals. Instead of addressing social, ecological, and animal injustice, injustices by shoring up and seeking protections for vulnerable human or non-human others, the focus would be on more equitably distributing the risks of living on this earth so that they're not borne primarily by marginal people and nature. Wonderful. And I think you've made that that point kind of throughout the episode today is that there needs to be a distribution of of risks. And I think, yeah, when you gave that kind of example, that development example, it really, it really helped to center this kind of question for me for thinking about where are we looking when we're talking about there's problems. It's like it's this kind of problem solution loop that we seem to constantly be on. Oh, there's a problem, but the problem is over there. So let's go fix that problem over there without looking at what is the root cause of this this kind of spiral of problems. And and if I understand your argument today, you know, one of the root causes is the idea that there is the supremacy and and untouchable kind of pursuits of humans doing well, that that humans living long, healthy lives is the ultimate goal of everything. And that 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 needs to be disrupted. Yeah. And this is there in, in the context of, you know, discussions on inequality and one the dominant way in which we address economic inequality, at least in in you know the the argument goes that you need to you do that by allowing people to earn more or to you know provide them with more money, but that never ever addresses inequality because inequality is always relational, right? And so the more you more money they may be in circulation, it's also quite likely that there is more inequality. And development has always been about inequality. And inequality actually, even though development tries to 
reduce inequality, all it does is that it needs inequality in order to justify itself because it's it's predicated on inequality because what is it? It's about catching up, right? And so, and you find that even in, in, in very kind of conventional or established critiques of development, there's this idea that inequality is not something that can be addressed by making the poor richer, right? And the same, I would say, applies to this, what I'm talking about in the context of analyzation. And this, this bit that I'm going to say now, you may not, I think maybe you'd want to edit it out. But to go back to your malaria example, one way of addressing that inequality there of like there's so many more people dying of malaria in some parts of the world than here, the say is to have perhaps like to have more vulnerability and risk here in terms of the numbers of people dying, maybe not to malaria because malaria may not be a thing here, but maybe to wolves, who knows, right? So there are different ways of addressing inequity or inequality. And that part you might want to edit out because I, I think somebody will like misquote it. <laughs> no, no. I think I think it's a good it's a good I mean, the thing is is talking about malaria, it's it's un, it's it's uncomfortable, but I think I think you point here to a really important thing because we're talking about risks. And when you're talking about risks, you're also speaking about resources. So if we've got, let's say, limited resources in a particular place and and wolves in Europe are now an increasingly big issue, right? There's like this huge campaign. They've just started to get some traction in their own numbers and, and to be able to move around the world in yeah, in some same no, it's I mean it's still a shadow of the way wolves once were, but they're finally gaining some traction, at least in terms of their numbers, just in time to have their numbers cut down again because they're killing sheep, right? But this isn't so the risks are now going towards wolves here and other people there and other people here. And we've got finite resources. And I think this brings us back to the politics of all of this, is if you've got finite resources, should these resources all be kind of directed towards our own space here, keeping us who are standing in this place as safe as possible all the time? Yeah, and and I'm not too sure that that's necessarily the answer. If we're going to make ourselves a little bit more at risk, it might mean distributing our own wealth in, in ways that seem unthinkable at present. Yeah. I mean, instead of thinking about redistributing wealth, I would say redistributing risk. So the wealth part can come later, whereas we've been just focused on redistributing wealth or resources of any kind, whether it's economic resources or material resources or technology or wisdom or whatever it might be. I think there's a need to move away from that and instead think, think about redistributing vulnerability and risk. Yeah, and I guess when you start to look at risks, there are different kinds of risks. Different places are more at risk of conflict, for example. Different places have higher risks of health challenges. Different places have higher risks of weather. So it's when you start to kind of think about them at a global scale, you get a different sense of where the vulnerabilities are. But even within a national scale or in an urban scale, or like you gave your ant, your ant example, the, the the risk to you versus the risk to the ants were, was quite different. So to think about what's fair in the situation, I, like I said, I'm still struggling. Like, I think this is really exciting to think with. And I think it's something I'm going to be mulling over for, for a long time. But I can definitely see the political ramifications for shifting our focus in this way. So thank you so much for your thoughts on this today. Before you leave us, do you want to tell folks a little bit about what you're currently working on? And if people want to get, get in touch with you, how they can do that? Yeah, so my current focus is the Rohingyas project, which is on street dogs and public health in India, looking at multiple aspects of the street dog human and health interface. 
And what we're trying to do is to explore whether there's a post-anthropocentric way of addressing these issues instead of the kind of dominant approach of, you know, prioritizing human health, including, you know, which one health falls under that camp. So that's my main focus. I still continue to retain interest on some of the work that I was doing earlier on animal agriculture and trying to look at the intersections of social, ecological and animal injustices and vulnerabilities in, in this domain. So in terms of empirical projects, these are two of my foci. Continue to think about this paper. It's just, you know, and the ideas here, it's it's a work in progress. And yeah, people can reach me on email, k.srinivasan and ed.ac.com. Or .ac.uk. They can follow me on Twitter at K-R-I-T-C-R-I-T. Well, thank you so much. I absolutely love your work and I very much enjoyed this paper and, and this, this concept. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. And thank you, Claudia, because it's, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you. I was quite anxious about doing this, but it's, it's been so easy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Hello, 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 Virginia. Welcome back to the Animal Highlight. Hello, good to be here. So this conversation with Krithika was a tough conversation, but it was a really enjoyable conversation. I enjoy reading her work a whole bunch. So I'm curious to hear which animal we're going to be focusing on with regards to reanimalization. Okay, well... Krithika Srinivasan's concept of reanimalization and how it can be used to help us think about multi-species justice and new ways of living in multi-species assemblages made me think about other than human agency and auto-rewilding. And I want to highlight grey wolves as a great example of animals auto-rewilding, reintroducing themselves to places where they lived previously but were driven out by humans. Oh, interesting. I actually just saw an article this morning on LinkedIn about killing practices in Poland. Anyway, I'm sorry, you keep going. So it's definitely a hot issue right now, I think. Yeah, and, and this is the point. Wolves are one of the animals most persecuted by humans. They've they faced systematic campaigns to drive them out of regions and even been wiped out of entire countries, as happened in Britain. Wolf persecution went to extraordinary lengths in Britain, to the point that in the 17th century, forests were cut down or burnt in order to hunt down the last wolves. But Britain's by no means the only country where wolves have been persecuted. They've been persecuted everywhere they're seen to conflict with human interests. The US is a good example of where wolves have faced a long and ongoing history of persecution, particularly in cases of farmer-wolf-livestock conflict. This persecution of wolves is based on the protection-sacrifice logic Krithika mentioned in her discussion with you. According to this logic, wolves are sacrificed to protect humans and human interests. The majority of the risks of coexistence are borne by wolves, while the majority of the benefits are enjoyed by humans. In putting forward her proposal of reanimalization, Krithika read a quote that might reimagine this wolf-human relationship. I was really taken by it, and I want to read it again. So she says, From a vision of a good human life premised upon insulation from the vulnerabilities inherent in living on this planet, we need to examine what it means to live as part of nature, as one among other animals. The focus would be on more equitably distributing the risks of living on Earth so that they are not borne primarily by marginal people and nature. 
So for the remainder of this highlight, I want to talk about how Kritika's idea of reanimalization might apply to the wolves who are reintroducing themselves to regions across Europe and the US. According to reanimalization, in a world where wolves live alongside humans, people would need to have a greater acceptance of the associated risks and resist the urge to kill wolves to minimize these risks. Such a commitment would reduce the burden of risk faced by wolves. And while it might increase the risk borne by humans, it's important to put this in context. The threats posed to people by wolves are minimal compared to the threats posed to wolves by people. A report for the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research on wolf attacks on humans found that between 2002 and 2020, only 26 people globally were killed by wolves. Compare this to the thousands of wolves killed each year by humans. Calculating the exact number is extremely difficult, but at least 2,000 wolves are killed every year in Kazakhstan alone. Embracing reanimalization would, however, require us to rethink how we coexist with animals which compete with our interests and conflict with our values, finding a new or renewed way of coexisting. This becomes all the more important when animals return to an area, either through their own or human agency, and when their numbers increase, because people are unused or unwilling to share space and resources. While auto-rewilding is being heralded by some as a valuable expression of other than human agency and as contributing to biodiversity restoration, wolves' disregard of human borders is exposing them to heightened risk. We need new ways of approaching the mutual risks of coexistence, because as wolf numbers recover and they start recolonizing former territories, human and wolf populations will come into contact more and more. Part of this increased contact is due to wolf mobility. Wolf territories can be extremely large, in some instances hundreds of square miles. Wolves also actively move around their territories, covering around 10 miles a day, and they can travel hundreds of miles when seeking new territory. This mobility means that they often cross political boundaries like national borders in Europe and state borders in the US. For example, as wolf numbers in Europe recover, wolves are moving into Belgium from neighbouring countries to recolonise their former territory, which has caused concern among farmers who are concerned for their livestock. We might find coexistence with wolves easier if we changed our narrative about them. This would obviously require a huge shift in our collective mindsets, from demonisation to appreciation of wolves. In a way, it's surprising that we don't appreciate wolves more. In terms of social structures and support, wolf society is really quite similar to human society. They work collaboratively to hunt and to raise their pups, and they have incredibly complex social structures. This means that while they can be highly competitive with wolves from outside their own packs, prioritising their family unit over everything else, on occasion, they can adopt unfamiliar wolves into their pack, building strong, loyal relationships in very similar ways to people. Changing our view of wolves, and indeed of ourselves, through reanimalization could help us coexist with other animals in the Anthropocene. With this in mind, I'd like to finish with another quote, this time from Ned Hettinger. Restoring to the rural landscape wolves which might eat our sheep forces us to change our grazing practices, adds to nature's influence over our lives and lessens our control of the situation. Thus, it increases the autonomy of local nature in relation to humanity.
Wonderful. I really do think that so much of this is about control and the the willingness to concede and release control and stop trying to control everything. And I think the the you know your example of wolves is happening. I mean, I was blown away. Two thousand wolves a year in Kazakhstan. Like I thought, wolves were in some critical danger in many places. And the idea that you can just be killing two thousand a year and it's not even noteworthy or makes you know. And every now and then you see like wolf deaths coming up in the news. So obviously, it's happening at much larger scales than what we, or at least myself, what I'm aware of. But then two thousand a year for how many years? Like how many wolves are we killing in one country? And yeah, we're we're just so intolerant of other species, and and particularly of species like the wolf, that really is seen as a threat to us, a direct threat to our safety, and then a direct threat to our live our livelihoods, really, and our livestock. Which I think I think we do take to another level with the wolf as well. I mean, we we do it with large predators. And large calm. You see, it's it's interesting though, because as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, this combination of control and intolerance makes me think of rats, actually. Because I think when you think about persecuted animals, and rats have come up several times in the animal highlight, rats are, I would argue, probably one of the most, if not the most, persecuted animal in terms of uh like wolves, they also seem to feature a lot in like mythology. They they're often associated with disease and risk. But unlike wolves, rats are kind of in cities. And I think maybe contact is part of this as well, right? You've got control and tolerance and contact. Because it seems to be that most of the conflict with wolves is happening at what I guess Harbour would call as contact zones or conflict zones, which I know some have called them, which is that interface, you know, raising of sheep, et cetera, is an interface, uh, a connection, a meeting point for wolves and humans, and of course, also for the sheep themselves. Anyway, I'm going down my own rabbit hole there, but I think it's really, I think this type of uh, sharing of risks happens at a whole host of scales from the city to just across borders, nations, etc. Well, and and I think your use of contact zones is really interesting in that, because that's what auto-rewilding is kind of bringing up, is we're coming into contact with animals more or they're coming into contact with us because they're they're recolonizing former territory and and we've encroached on their habitat so much that they're often finding themselves if not in cities at least on margins and and that idea of cohabiting which Krithika was talking about is really wrapped up in that I think yeah, and like I find, because I think it's Dinesh, I could be mistaken, but I think it's Dinesh Wadiwell who calls them conflict zones. You know, these spaces, because there is a lot of fighting and there's often a lot of violence at these zones, which is quite clear in this case of wolves, but maybe it's, a, it's you know, the reanimalization is a, like a considered attempt to move from a conflict zone to a contact zone where our, our meeting doesn't have to be this violence and the risks, like you've said, the risks and burdens of of meeting one another should be more evenly distributed, but massively complicated issue. I enjoy talking to Krithika. The concept is hard to get around, but I think it's really a valuable one to sit and dwell with. So thank you for giving me something to to think with. Thank you. 
Thank you to Kritika Srinivasan for being a fantastic guest, to Virginia Thomas for the annual highlights, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. Thank you to Christian Mentz for his editing work and Rebecca Shen for her design work. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!